to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Reading of the word this morning is found in Romans chapter 10, which is page 946 of your pew Bible. Page 946. Sermon text for today is found in Romans 10, verses 5 through 13. Romans 10, 5 through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together as we come to his word. Lord, apart from your grace, we won't understand your word. We especially will not hear it and really listen, we will not apply it to our lives. We will not trust you because of it. We will not grow in grace. Oh, Lord, we pray for your mighty spirit that you promise in the new covenant that you will give us that spirit and you will write your law in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that we would be all the more those who trust in the lordship of Jesus Christ the gracious Lordship of Jesus. Bless us to that end, we pray in his name. Amen. I want you to uh, use your imagination. And and as you enter into this world, you may even feel unhinged a little bit. You you may feel like, I I have nothing to hold on to. There is no reality there. Everything is turned upside down, and, and I don't know what to hold on to. I don't know even how to think about life in this context. I want you to imagine that we have a surplus in our national budget, okay? That's what I want you to imagine. <laughs> and imagine, then, I know it's, it's you're, you're lost now. There's no way to even touch base, but, uh, but imagine that you were told that the surplus is so great that there are riches for anyone, anyone who'll just come in and sign your name and you'll get $50,000. 
It's for every citizen of the nation. Every single one of you. Think, what do I have to... Is your name on the roll? Are you a citizen of the country? Yes, you get the money. You get the riches. This is what we're told in this passage. This amazing statement in verse 12. To say there is no distinction. doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter who you are. The same Lord is Lord of the whole of the world. And so in that sense, every single person in the world becomes a citizen in the the sense of our illustration. Every single person in the world has now offered to them the full unlimited riches of God himself in Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is about. In coming to this point, in, in underscoring this, Paul is still dealing with the Uh, the Jewish opposition. He's still, in a sense, in the synagogue, always preaching the gospel against the backdrop of Jewish resistance. And the Jewish resistance hovered around their holding on to the law itself as their reason for living and the way that they could have a righteous standing before God. They misused the law in this regard. And this passage really points this out. And Paul uses actually two passages in the law, which is puzzling when you first come to it, to underscore the fact that it is only by faith. And because it is by faith, it is open to everyone, and therefore riches are for anyone. So we're going to first look at, it's, it's not by works, but by faith, because of the revelation of the law in the Old Testament, the way the law was revealed in the Old Testament. But then especially, it's not by works but by faith because of the revelation of Christ as Lord in the New Testament. So the revelation of the law in the Old Testament and the revelation of Christ as Lord in the New Testament. Now, he begins by going to Leviticus Chapter 18, verse 5. Now, I know all of you have been doing your quiet time in Leviticus this week. Um, verse 5 here is dealing with Leviticus 18, 15. Now, the puzzling thing is that in its context, Le- Leviticus 18, uh, verse 15, is not, uh, it's not dealing with a legalistic approach to the Word of God. It is not a legalistic uh, text in that regard. It is, but what Paul is doing here is taking a favorite Jewish passage that has been abused in terms of the law, and he's showing another portion of the law that disproves that. Okay, he's going to go to Deuteronomy thirty to show that their understanding of Luke eighteen is wrong. Have I confused you? If not, I'm, I'm, I'm not there yet. Uh, <laughs> now, maybe I can picture it this way. In a way, Leviticus 18, the way it reads that he who does the commandments shall live by them, it can be taken as, as though a boat, the boat of God's revelation kind of comes close to this island where some people could see an island of the possibility of self-righteousness. And they could get off this boat of faith in God and kind of look over at that island. And so the Jews kind of took this passage and began to use it in a wrong way. To say this must mean that 
you, if you have the commandments and you do them, then you earn God's favor or you stay in God's favor by concentrating on the rules themselves, on the rituals themselves. And they lost the whole heart of it. It's helpless dependence on a merciful God. It's recognition, as the law says, that I have sinned. It's recognition that the very circumcision that is in my body says, you need a new heart. You must trust this God for transformation. You must trust Him for forgiveness. But that was molded into something else. If I keep the law then and, and do all these rituals, then I can have and keep a right standing with God and kind of avoid all this talk about really how sinful I am and that I'm like every other sinner in the world and I need God's mercy and I need a new heart. Uh, let's just do something that kind of builds up my self-dignity. And so Paul is taking their misinterpretation. And if you back up to chapter 9 where we dealt with last week, it says in verse 31, Israel pursued a law and didn't reach that law because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, verse 32. That's the key to this. He's going back to the Jewish mentality here in Leviticus 18.5. The... the, uh, the Jewish mentality, not uh, what was truly the case in, in the very meaning of, of Leviticus. It's Leviticus uh, 18.5, not 15, I'm sorry. Um, so, um, he just lost my train of thought because <laughs> I was thinking, was it 15 or 5 in, in Leviticus? So he, he's showing that, that it's the same idea as verse 32, based on works. And also chapter 10, verse 3, seeking to establish their own righteousness. See, that's the, he, he keeps contrasting the Jews trying to pursue the law as if it were by works, trying to establish their own righteousness. And now he's dealing with that same idea, taking a favorite passage of theirs, Leviticus 18.5, and saying, this is the righteousness based on the law, so understood by the Jews. But he says, this is not the real meaning of the text. And actually, in Jewish interpretation, this is what they would do. If you misquote a verse, they wouldn't go in and show how you misquoted this verse or misinterpreted. They would just go to another text and say, look at the meaning of this text. It shows you can't be right over here. You just can't be. That's not the right understanding of this because it's not the understanding of the word as a whole. And so he goes to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And this, if the first part wasn't unusual, this really is because this seems very confusing when you first read it. What does this mean? Who's going to ascend to heaven and bringing Christ down? Who's descending into the abyss? What does this have to do with anything? It's a very difficult portion. And uh, so we want to take it a piece at a time here. Now, the first thing that's very interesting is he has this phrase in verse 6, do not say in your heart. Now, you wouldn't know when you first look at it, but this is taken, this little phrase is spliced into Deuteronomy 30. And here's an illustration. Suppose you built a house in, the ta- in your little town, and you had taken a porch from the old Walmart place out in the country, okay? And when that house was torn down, you bought the porch and you actually put the Walmart porch on your house. So when people come up and they say, 
What am I? This looks like the porch from the Walmart place. Yeah, it is the porch from the Walmart place. Gosh, I can remember playing under that porch as a little boy. Yeah, me too. I can remember my mama visiting them and swinging me until I went to sleep. I can smell those apple trees out the Walmart place. And that's what you want, right? You want everybody, if they, if they come into your house onto that porch, they think of all the contacts of the Walmart place, Okay. That's what Paul's doing with this little text. He wants you to get the flavor of where this text comes from. And here's where it comes from. This is so interesting. In Deuteronomy 9, God says, Don't say when you come into the land that you're giving me this land because of my righteousness. He says it three times in that passage. Paul wants you to bring the Walmart porch, <laughs> so to speak, into this passage and say... Don't depend on your own righteousness. It's not you. It's not your accomplishment. And then in Deuteronomy 8, 17, the phrase again occurs where he says, don't, when you are fully in the land and you have all your crops, don't think that it's your strength and your power. You're going to say, oh, it's my power, my strength that gives me this. I don't have to trust in God anymore. So right at the outset, Paul purposely splices in, like you splice a wire, he splices in this, this text to show right at, from the beginning, it does not depend on your righteousness or your strength. It is all of God. So then the point, that's the first thing to understand is this, this introduction, this porch that he builds for the, the context. The second thing is this. When he uses these phrases, who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss, this is a way in the ancient world of speaking about doing that which is impossible. Okay, And the idea is, how are we going to get the truth of God? How are we going to get wisdom? How are we... and all the other religions of different meditation stuff, trying to get connected with God out there in the abyss. And the same idea is, is the abyss. Like, is it in light, unexpressible, that we find God somehow? Or is it in the darkness? Is it the dark side, so to speak, using Star Wars terms? In the, in the deep, in the abyss, that we find out what truth is. Well, in the original context... What God is saying to Israel, if they made the excuse to say, well, we don't know what the will of God is. Who's going to go up into heaven and find it? Who's going to go out into the sea or out into the deep to find it? And he says, it's been brought right to you. I mean, you were slaves in Egypt. And God magnificently revealed his power in the plagues that he sent upon Egypt and splitting the Red Sea and giving you manna and water in the desert and then appearing in lightning and, and storm on the mountain and giving his law. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to dig for it or go for it. God has graciously come into your presence. God has come to you in his mercy and he's revealed himself to you. You see, against the backdrop of that opening porch, don't count on your own righteousness or your own strength. Don't count on your own looking for it. You can't find it. You can't create it. You can't lay hold of God. God has to come to you and lay hold of you. God has to reveal himself to you, and he has done that. 
Even in Deuteronomy 30, that's what Moses is saying to them. This does not depend on you. It is not up to your striving. It is not up to your accomplishment or your power or your wisdom or your anything. God has come to you and revealed it to you in His Word. And again, therefore, your interpretation of Luke 18, that if you do enough stuff, then you can get to God, absolutely wrong. God magnificently has to come to you. God has to break into your world and into your helplessness and into your slavery and into your lostness. And He has to rescue you and reveal His Word and beauty and salvation to you. It's all about God. It's not about your accomplishment. It's about God's accomplishment for you. That's what this passage in Deuteronomy meant. But then you can see how Paul immediately teaches it in a New Testament context. So that as the law, we read in verse 4, that its goal is Christ, that its meaning is Christ, its final end and purpose is Christ, so Paul can go straight from the revelation of the law in the Old Testament to the revelation of Christ in the New Testament. And he, he does it in this way. And, and this even brings what Moses says to a more intimate, intimate application for us. That is, who will ascend into heaven? Well, Christ is the one who's already been incarnated and revealed the Father to us. We have those passages in John where Jesus himself says uh, that no one has seen the Father, but the Son has revealed him. Or John 1, where John himself says, uh, well, that's what John himself says. No one has seen the Father. The Son has revealed Him. The Son is an exposition of Him. No one's ascended into heaven, Jesus says, but the Son is the one who's descended from heaven. So to say, we, we need to break into heaven. We need to find out the truth of God. Well, the summation and glory and beauty of heaven has come down in Jesus Christ in the flesh. Glory has broken out among us. He has tabernacled among us. Even as John says in the first uh, chapter of his letter, we've seen him and touched him and heard him. And so we can't say, well, who's going to find truth out there? Or if you think of it in the abyss, maybe it is in the darkness. Maybe it's behind death somewhere in the mysteries, in magic, or whatever. No, Jesus has been to death. <laughs> He's come back from the darkness. He's come back from being under sin. He has come back from death. And He's brought, and, and, and in a sense, for His people, He's, lo- He's put a lock on it. That's gone. That's over. We may die for a time. Our bodies may die. But we will be with Jesus, and those bodies will be resurrected one day. He's put a lock and there's no key to death for his people. It's over for us eventually and gone. And so all truth and all glory is revealed in Jesus Christ. He's the one who's come from heaven. He's the one who's come from the dead. And so to say, to bring Christ down is, is, a, is a creative way to say, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. That is to say, he didn't really come down. Or to say, to bring Christ up from the dead. Well, he didn't really come from the dead. There is no incarnation. There is no resurrection. There is no lordship of Jesus over all things. Which, of course, was a Jewish opposition to the gospel. 
And so here's Paul holding forth the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing, if, and you, we don't have time for this, but if you go back and look in Deuteronomy chapter 30, it actually, the first part of that chapter, contemplates when God will restore His people in the final day. And it says, He will circumcise their heart so that they will love Him with all their heart, soul, and mind. And so Paul sees this passage as being fulfilled in Christ when hearts are being circumcised, as he says in Colossians 2, or as he calls the people of God in in Philippians 3, he says, we're the circumcision. I don't mean that we're circumcised physically, but we're the circumcision, circumcised not with hands, but with with the, the Spirit of God. We are the true people of God. We are the ones that are being renewed as Paul, as, as God described it in Deuteronomy 30. So amazing that Paul would go to this passage and says, say, this is the meaning of the Old Testament and New Testament. God graciously reveals himself uh, in the Old Testament and then he just blows the doors off of revelation of himself in the New, in the revealing of his own son. And now the word is not simply that word of the Old Testament, but he says it's uh, the word, verse 8, that is near you in your mouth and in your heart, the word of faith that we proclaim. Now the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart is from uh, Deuteronomy. And it's to show the accessibility of that revelation, the nearness of that revelation, but all the more that it is revealed in Jesus Christ. And so I want to close by our talking about Christ as Lord in this passage and some of the implications for us. The word that is in your mouth and in your heart, the word that is the faith that we proclaim, the word of faith means the word that brings forth faith, the the word that calls for faith, that calls for helpless dependence, the word that calls for confidence in God and expectancy in God. This is the word that we proclaim. And he says, because in Deuteronomy, the order is mouth and heart. You see that in verse 8. He keeps that order, even though it's not logically the order. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. But that's because he's keeping to that order, you see, in the Old Testament. If you, It's in your mouth and in your heart. But then in verse 10, he reverses it to give you the 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 order that we know it really is, that you believe and you confess. But what's interesting in the Jewish way they do that, it puts the important things in the middle. So it's confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. That's the way the Jewish uh, poetry and, and exposition puts the important things at the middle. So it's the heart. It's the heart that, of course, issues in the confession of the life. It issues in the change of life and the change of how you think and what you say about God and what you say about Christ. But the real issue is that your heart has been transformed. It is at the root of who you are that you come to grips with Jesus as Lord over all. And really, resurrection and lordship are just one thing in Scripture. He is declared Lord by His resurrection. The ascension and the ruling at the right hand of God is just a part of the resurrection. It's seen as one piece. 
So we believe in Him as the resurrected Lord. And the first thing I want to say is that it's not just that you are checking off the list to say, okay, I believe that Jesus died, I believe He was incarnated, I believe He was raised from the dead, I believe He's at the right hand of God. No, it's a belief and a trust in which you entrust yourself to Him as your Lord. And you commit yourself to Him as your Lord. That's the meaning of believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. It's it's your whole life being caught up, of course, not perfectly, but your whole life being deeply motivated and sincere from the heart that this is the Lord and I want to give myself to Him. Here's some of the things that uh, will be a part of this. And there's this sense in which you are thinking, I must have this resurrected Lord. I must have this resurrected Lord. I must entrust myself to Him. I must give my life up to this resurrected Lord. First, you do this because of forgiveness. Interesting, isn't it, that the cross is not mentioned in this place. And you might think, Paul, just just one small thing. You say, if I confess that He's the Lord and believe in my heart, He raised Him from the dead... You leaving out the crucifixion here, bud? You know, that tends to be our approach. It's like one little, I don't know, to me it seems a tiny thing. You've got the Lord's Supper, you know, whatever. just seems to be a little bit of a thing that you left out here. Well, like Calvin and others have said, it's not that he's drawing attention away from the death of Christ. Rather, he's showing the effectiveness and fruit of that death by declaring resurrection. Because just as I said, resurrection and ascension are always bound together, so death and resurrection. That he was raised from the dead is only because he died and his death is effective. Therefore, he's raised from the dead. He died for sinners to bear their punishment, to show that, and and, and it demonstrates that he is entirely effective in his death for sinners, that their death is paid for, that he himself is set free from death. As simple as if someone, if I had to go to jail for two years and somebody was able to take my place, the minute they walk out of jail two years from now, I pretty much know this ain't going to fall on my head again. (laughs) He paid all two years and he walked out. He's free. He's gone. And that's what God proclaims to us. Resurrected Lord, finished His work. It's been accepted by the Father, demonstrated by the resurrection. There's forgiveness for you. That's why this little important phrase that you will not be put to shame, really in verse 11, this is more of a cosmic thing. You will not be disgraced in judgment day is what that means. You will not stand before God. In other words, this forgiveness that you have has judgment day effectiveness. This is a forgiveness and acceptance with God that will be good now and every day of your life all the way to when you stand before God. There will be no disgrace for you, no shame in judgment day for you. Anyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame, will not be disgraced ever. Because you are forgiven. You are accepted in Christ. As He has paid completely for sin and you trust in Him, your sin is taken away. 
That is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection, we're still in our sins. If there's no resurrection, then the death was not effective to pay for sins. If there's no resurrection, we're still in our sins. Sin is still upon us because he did not pay for sin. So we trust in this Lord. He is Lord and grants forgiveness. He is Lord and if he forgives, no one else can say anything. He is Lord. He is Lord. We trust him for transformation. I already said that the context in Deuteronomy is is that he will circumcise our hearts and cause us to love him with all our heart, soul, and mind. We come to him as Lord saying that I cannot change myself. Paul has talked about the need for the new heart and talked about how it's done by the Holy Spirit at the end of Romans chapter 2. He talks about in Romans 6 how we die with Christ and we are raised to a new life. Cataclysmic things happen with Christ and our union with him to create a new life for us. Or you're just left to yourself. To try to do it on your own. No, we come, and, and, and in coming to the Lord to be transformed, there's the understanding that He's mightier than my sin. He's exalted, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and that includes the demonic hosts that bind us, that rule us in, in our sin. He's Lord over everything. If you belong to Him, you belong to nothing else. Nothing else ultimately has you in its grip because Christ is yours. And that's why in Deuteronomy 31, as he speaks of the new covenant, he says, I will put my word in your heart. I will change you from the inside out. I know where this problem is. I know it's deep within you. I know you can't change yourself any more than a person can change their skin color or a leopard can change its spots. You can't change yourself. I will change you. And that's part of why we come to him and say, Oh, Lord, exalted, all-powerful Jesus, save me. Save me. See, we come to him just like sick people came to Jesus recognizing he has power. Power. Like the centurion, he, he, you know, came to get him and to bring him back to his servant. The centurion said, wait, wait, wait. I, I know what it is to tell guys to do something and they do it because I know what authority is. Just, just say the word. Just say it and my, my servant will be healed. See, he believed in his authority, didn't he? Believed in his lordship, his control. That's the kind of faith we come to. So part of your faith, see, acknowledges his kingship, his lordship. And the very fact that he uses this phrase in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word Lord, kurios, was the translation for Yahweh in the Old Testament. The word that you couldn't even speak because it was so holy. And the, new, the, the writers had no qualms about saying, okay, Yahweh, Kurios. Now it's Kurios, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this phrase, this, this is taken in verse 13 from 
uh, Joel chapter 2, and it's speaking about Yahweh. Everyone who calls in the name of Yahweh will be saved. And Paul, with no qualms, says, anyone who calls in the name of the Lord, and he means the Lord Jesus here. So Jesus is being given this exalted name, the name of God himself. And it's interesting that with the, the, this, this marks, even as in the Old Testament, it would mark people that they began to call on the name of Yahweh. Now in the New Testament, they began to call on the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, even when it says Paul was persecuting, who was he persecuting? Those who call on the name of the Lord. So it was their name. It's, it's how you describe them. How, how, what characterizes them? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1. You're among all of those who call on the name of the Lord. That marks us. Not those who called in the past tense, but those who now it's their way of life. We call upon Him. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy. He's, he's faithful. He's good. He's strong. It's a way that we worship Him. Calling upon Him is a way to worship Him and knowledge that all of our needs could be met in Him. How else could He be our Savior? Because as God says in Isaiah 45, there is no Savior besides me. And yet Paul says, call upon Jesus and you'll be saved. He couldn't exalt Him more. He couldn't say in any other way, I'm talking God here. I'm talking Yahweh who alone saves. Call upon this one and he will save you. Well, we don't have time, but I'm just going to mention for final, complete cosmic renewal for a new body and a new world and new relationships and new work and new play forever and ever on the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, that's free. Um, But that's part of the resurrection, okay? That's part of the resurrection is the resurrection of all things, including creation and our bodies. But the final thing I want to say is that we trust Him not only for forgiveness and transformation, but we trust Him for constant, personal, sovereign care in this terrible world of suffering and grief. Calling on His name is a way of life. It's a way of constantly calling upon what? The riches that we have in Him. This isn't just bestowing riches at one point, but constantly bestowing the riches of salvation upon His people who are constantly calling on Him that He would bestow those riches. That's our life, you see. Our happy life of having our needs met constantly by the Lord Jesus Christ who's exalted at the right hand of God who has died in our place, who has shown himself to be a glorious Lord who would lay down his life for his people. And when you say, when you call upon him as Lord and confess him as Lord and believe in him as Lord, it means that you're saying, you have ownership of me. I belong to you. I'm devoted to you. I commit my allegiance to you. Now, no circumstances can block the giving of His unlimited resources to us because He's Lord. That's why it's so important that He's Lord. Nothing can stop Him from bringing blessings to you. Even in the midst of the worst disaster or in the midst of death itself and disease, in the midst of that, He will make you like Christ. He will reveal His beauty and glory so that you worship Him and savor Him and adore Him in the midst of whatever you go through.
That's life. It's not what you and I think. It's what Jesus says in John 17. This is eternal life that you know me, that you know the Father and you know me. In the midst of good things, in the midst of bad things, that you have fellowship with me, that you rest in me and rejoice in me. And you see, because He is Lord and He's the resurrected one, He's present with us. He sustains us. Uh, We're broken and enslaved and helpless, but He is Lord over everything. And because He is Lord, He says in Matthew 28, I'm with you to the end of the earth. Nothing can stop Jesus from being with His people. He's Lord. Nothing can hold Him out of blessing to you. He is Lord. The Word is near. He is near to us. And of course, Paul says in verse 13, he adds this word. It's a little Greek word, pos, but it means everyone. Everyone who calls on him. And dear friend, that's, that's why, you know, the title of this, this sermon, yes, it's true. Riches for all who call upon him. The only reason you will be deprived of the riches of God and the riches of His salvation is because you just won't call on Him. Now, even that, we know, comes from His grace. And you need to even, you can even say, Lord, enable me to call on you. I'm so lost in myself, I won't even call on you. I don't even want to call on you. Okay, begin to call on Him for that. You see, at any point of your helplessness, you can begin to say, Oh, Lord, save me. Acknowledge His Lordship. And you see, you've, you've really got to follow someone or something in this world. I hope that every person here, just in a general way, you're thinking, I want my life to count for something more than just me. You know, to have some kind of influence in this world. Some kind of impact for good in this world. Something besides just me. And, and I throw out, who are you going to follow? Who's going to be your Lord? Who's going to be your authority? Who will you look to for wisdom? Who will you look to for strength? Who will you look to? Who is there but this one who said of himself, even I, the Son of Man in glory, even I did not come to serve myself, but to serve. Is there a greater king? Is there anyone worth giving your life up to? Anything worth giving up your life? than this Lord. May we all call upon Him. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that You would bless us with faith. Bless us that we will look to You. That we will call upon You from the heart. O Lord, that we will confess You with our lives. That we will live as becomes followers of Jesus Christ that we will love others as you have loved us. Oh, bless us, Lord. Open up our hearts. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, 
and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?